hates it when I use her for sermon illustrations. Sorry. So if you come into the office this coming week and you see me with like imprint of couch cushion on my face, you know the reason why now. Uh, but, but sometimes there's just something about her, about her life that's, that's too perfect to pass up for a sermon illustration. And, and there's a really fitting one today because she has this kind of, we won't use the word weird, um, this quirk when she picks up a, a new book to read, she'll actually flip to the last pages and read the end of the book first. This serves as kind of like an initial screening process for her. If the end is depressing, morose, why waste her time reading it? She also knows which characters maybe she can invest a little more into emotionally and which characters maybe not so much, right, because they're not there at the end. For, for these and other reasons, though, she, she likes to read the end of the story first. Here's the thing, though. In order to truly appreciate the end of the story, you have to go back to the beginning, right? By going back and reading the beginning and the subsequent pages, this is really what gives the end of the story real meaning and significance, right? That's what makes the ending so impactful. Well, today, we get to look at the end of a story in Revelation 22. Only this isn't some work of fiction. And the characters aren't ones that, that you can just kind of close the book on, put it on your shelf, and, and not think about anymore. No, this story is history. And one of the characters in it is you. But in order to really appreciate the end, we need to go back to the beginning to see why it matters so much, why it is so significant for our lives, why it bears impact on us even today. You see, back at the beginning of this story, God created the heavens and the earth in their vast array. It's a story that begins then in paradise as God says that it's all good. And then probably the, the best part of it is where he put Adam and Eve into the Garden of Eden. And there among its pristine, clear rivers, they, they walked and they talked and they lived. Those rivers fed the, the, the trees and those trees fed the fruit and the fruit fed them. There was no conflict. They were in absolute harmony with one another and they were in absolute harmony with God. They walked with him and they talked with him and they, they lived in the glory of his presence day in and day out. And God had just one single command for Adam and Eve. He said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And every time they stayed away from that tree, they, they were in, sen in a sense worshiping God, right? They were showing their love and their appreciation for the God who had made them and who had, who had put them into this paradise. But then came the day when they were deceived into believing that, that paradise wasn't quite enough for them anymore. And they ate from that tree that God commanded them not to eat from. And when they did, sin entered the world. And God had told them beforehand, the consequences would come with their sin. And so the consequences came. Sorrow and pain entered into their existence, and not only into theirs, but into the lives of their children and, and, and their children's children after them. Their relationships 
became strained and, and broken. God told them that the whole earth, the whole earth even now, was now under a, a curse because of their sin, so that even death came hand in hand with their rebellion. And the entire history of the world since then has been one that is under this curse, introduced by that first sin of Adam and Eve. Now, as a former English teacher, I can, I can tell you that um, just about every story has certain similar elements that, that we might call parts of a plot. Well, here, here we have the introduction of the conflict into the story, only it's not, into, it's not conflict introduced into just some story that, again, you can put away and forget about. It's conflict that is introduced into your story. So that's our first main point this morning. The curse of sin subjects creation to conflict. And you find yourself right smack dab in the middle of that story. A story of conflict. A story of violence, of warfare, and of bloodshed that you can read about in pages and pages and pages of history books, and yet not just violence between great countries of the world, sometimes violence that takes place on an interpersonal level. As we hurt one another with our words and actions in so many imaginable ways. It's a story of broken families. It's a story of emotionally abusive friends and relatives. It's a story of manipulation people using one another to their own advantage. It's a story of the strong preying on the weak, of broken systems, a story of racism and sexism and classism. It's a story sometimes of personal, deep depressions and anxieties, sorrows and fears and worries. It's a story of unfulfilled dreams of the the drudgery and, and the doldrums of daily life, a story of frustration and bitterness and guilt and grief. It's a story of creation that is in bondage to decay. As the world and everything breaks down around us, as we ourselves eventually start to break down to our bodies, no longer doing what they used to do. Sometimes it's even a story of the very young being cut down in the prime of their life before they even have a chance to reach old age and start breaking down like that. That's the broken place where we live. And that brokenness has touched you in so many ways and has, has left you yourselves broken in so many ways. That's where we are. And that's where we stay. Just as was the case for your grandparents and their grandparents before them, just as will be the case for your children and their children and their children's children after them. And there are some days as we are going through this broken place, as we are experiencing the sorrows and the frustrations when those questions come to mind, questions like, What's to come of me? Where is all this really leading to? How could there possibly be a, a happy ending to all of this? How can I find comfort in such a 
comfortless world as this is. You know, there's, there's something that I find interesting about the characters and all of my favorite stories, especially the ones that I, that I know very well, that I've read and, and reread. And it's that as those characters are, are going through the, the midst of their struggles and, and, and the, their obstacles, they have no idea what's waiting for them at the end, right? They don't know that they're coming to a happy ending through it all, right? Cinderella doesn't know that she's going to go to the ball and marry the prince. Harry Potter doesn't know whether he will defeat Voldemort or whether Voldemort will conquer him. Frodo doesn't know whether he will survive his long journey to destroy the ring of power and bring an end to the reign of Sauron. But if you've read the ending, you do. And so even when they are going through the thick of it and it seems like things are so hopeless and they can't find any comfort, you can find comfort for them. And maybe you've even found yourself like, like willing that comfort to them. I know it sounds crazy, but willing that comfort to these characters and your favorite stories because you just want them to know if you keep on going, there is a beautiful end that is waiting for you. Press on. You've got to see it. Well, the Apostle John, who wrote Revelation, he found himself in the middle of a broken world just like you and me. In fact, the entire Christian church at this time understood it perhaps even more strongly than you and I do today. John himself was in lonely exile on the island of Patmos at this time. Christians throughout the Roman world, simply for bearing the name of Christ, could be imprisoned, sentenced, executed like that. Families were ripped apart, sometimes literally in the Colosseums. And those Christians living during that time must have had so many of those same questions running through their minds that you and I have some days. What's to come of us? They didn't have that clear picture of the end, and so they wondered where they were going to find, where would, where would we draw our comfort? And so it is for them that God gives the end of the story. And not just for them, it's for you and me today. He shows us the final pages. Eden restored. Paradise returned to the very people who spurned it as they ran after so many things that they thought would better. And we're going to read that end of the story now in Revelation 22, 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever 
and ever. Now, I wish that we could spend the entire rest of the morning focusing on and expounding on some of the beautiful pictures that we find in these five verses of Revelation. We don't have that kind of time, though, so we're just going to focus on three this morning. Three of these beautiful pictures of your end that God gives you today as you live in this broken world so that you can hold on to them for your comfort. And the first one that we're going to look at is this tree of life, right? This tree whose leaves bear healing for the nations. Now, normally, if you're reading through Greek literature, if you're reading through the New Testament of the Bible, whenever you would come across the word tree, you would probably find this word, dendron. Okay, so if you're outside and you see a tree, it's got roots in the ground, it has leaves, well, maybe not right now, they've all blown off yesterday, but it normally... Um, during season has leaves on it and, and flowers and fruits and all that. This is a dendron, okay? This is a living tree. However, that's not the word we have here. It's a much rarer Greek word, xylon. And this is not a tree of life. It's actually the opposite. Xylon is a word that they would have used for a dead tree. A dead tree that was being cut down and sawn apart, probably, to make lumber. In fact, sometimes the word is just synonymous with a large, hewn piece of lumber. So what's the deal here? Why, why the, the, the seemingly odd switch? Before we can answer that question, there's something else that we need to understand about this story of this world that we live in. And it's that so often we tend to see ourselves as, as the victims, victims of a broken world, victims of the broken people around us in the world. And while there is certainly plenty of truth to that, the Bible also tells us that just as much as we are victims, we're perpetrators of it, of the evil and the brokenness in this world around us. God, through his servant Paul, makes this point very, very clear in Romans 3 when he says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see, we don't just live in a broken world that is full of bad people and bad things. We are the bad people who put so many of our own badness into this world around us through our selfishness, through our pride, through our, our constant need for feeling respected by the people around us as we vent our frustrations and our bitterness in life at other people. It's not just that we are broken. We break. And so if there is going to be any healing for us, it needs to begin with our forgiveness. And that forgiveness is found at a tree. An ugly, cruel, dead, blood-stained, beautiful, life-giving tree. 
this tree of life in Revelation is actually a reference to the cross of Jesus. And this isn't the only place in Scripture either which uses that word tree to describe the cross. In Galatians, we see not only is it called a tree, but we also see God's power at work upon that tree. This verse says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. At that cross, at that tree is where we find the power of God to break this seemingly unbreakable power and pattern of that curse that has existed since Adam and Eve so long ago. Because there at the cross is where we see Jesus, though he had no brokenness in himself, and yet was broken by all of those around him. This is where we see Jesus, who though so many sinned against him, he never retaliated with sin of his own. This is where we see him now take upon himself the curse that he did not deserve. As he willingly invites your curse and my curse and the curse of this entire creation upon himself. And there... The Bible says that as he dies and then by his subsequent resurrection to life, that curse and its power have been cracked. In fact, have been utterly shattered in this. That cross of Jesus, that tree stands as the only source of healing for the nations. And that means that it stands as the only source of healing and of forgiveness for you and me. But there's something more that we find at this cross of Jesus. As the power of the curse has been broken there, we are told that now a day is coming when that curse will be unraveled and undone entirely. And that's the second picture that we're looking at here, stated so simply and so straightforwardly as John records it and says, no longer will there be any curse. Recently, I, I finished reading the, the Lord of the Rings series, and, and there was a moment near the end of that book, spoilers on you if you haven't read it at this point, though. <laughs> near the end of that story, after Frodo and his, his faithful companion, Sam, have succeeded in their quest to destroy that ring of power, they've gone through all of the, the harrowing experiences, and they've, they've succeeded. They've brought the rain of sour and crumbling into dust, and when they're finished with their task, they think they're not going to survive to, to go back to their friends and families and homes or anything like that. And they kind of overcome by everything. They, they pass out into unconsciousness. As it turns out, they are rescued by some of their friends. And they, they sleep and they sleep and they heal. And when Sam wakes up, he sees sitting with them their old friend and mentor, the wizard Gandalf, whom they thought had been dead this whole time, alive again. And Sam looks at him and he asks, is everything sad going to come untrue? And Gandalf responds, a great shadow has departed. Because of Christ 
And because of his cross, the shadow of this curse, the shadow of sin is even now being rolled back like a scroll. And soon will come the day when all of the brokenness and all of the sorrows and all of the pain and all of the griefs and all of the frustrations and even death itself will be distant memories of the past. They will be undone completely and they will be forever in the past. That curse will be able to hurt you and haunt you no more. That's our, our main point this morning. Because of the cross, the curse is broken forever. And yet not only are all the bad things that we experience in this life going to, to be gone and absent, this is also then the era when God ushers in a, a blessed beauty and an existence that you and I have only known in tiny fraction and slivering part before then. And that's our, our third image. It's one that is so easy just to, to skip over. It doesn't sound quite as impressive as some of those other things. And yet, this is maybe the most beautiful thing of all. Those five simple words, they will see his face. You and me and all of those who arrive at this blessed scene will see the face of God. One of my all-time favorite paintings is by the um, Egyptian Christian artist Kirilo Safwat, and it's called First Day in Heaven. And there's a lot that I really love about this painting, but I think what I love most of all is the look of absolute ecstasy and joy on the young woman's face as she sees her Savior Jesus for the very first time. I mean, can you imagine it? Getting a hug from Jesus, having him wrap you up in his arms, seeing those holes in his hands and feet, even being able to feel with your own finger the, the scars of love that he bore for you. Being embraced in the warmth of the one who loved you all the way to a cross. Because of what Jesus has done, you will see his face, and in fact, you will see the face of your God and your Father exactly as Adam and Eve saw him in the Garden of Eden so long ago. As you walk with and talk with and live in the glorious and unveiled presence of your Father in the new heavens and in the new earth that he has waiting for you. And that's our, our final key point this morning. Your story begins and ends with God. And in fact, it is not a story that ends. Rather, the last chapter of Revelation is just the beginning of an infinite chapter of love and joy without sorrow and without end. And it is that grace that grace that God gives us of seeing what is coming to us, which now gives us that secondary grace of comfort now 
That as we walk through the ills of this life, as we go through the heartbreak and we go through the sorrow, and that even as we have tears in our eyes, we can have joy and peace because we know what is coming to us. And maybe I can use one final illustration to help drive that home. A couple days ago, I spent $2 on a sermon illustration for you today. This is a Powerball ticket, right? Maybe you've heard that the drawing last night was for $1.5, $1.6 billion. Could you imagine, though, if you had this ticket and you woke up in the morning and you saw that all six of your numbers matched the ones that were drawn last night? What does that mean is coming to you? whole lot of money. It's not in hand just yet, but you know that it is going to be soon. Well, now just imagine that you are on your way to the, I don't know what, I don't know what they call it, the lottery office to collect your winnings, and you realize that a $5 bill just slipped out of your pocket somewhere along the way. Do you, do you think that's going to ruin your day? Like, even if it's a 20 or a 100, are, are you going to stop what you're doing, go back and angrily retrace your steps, frustrated that you lost that money? Absolutely not, right? Because you know that what you have coming makes $5 or 20 or even $100 nothing by comparison. Well, you've got a whole lot more than $1.6 billion coming to you. You've got even more than 1.6 billion years coming to you of mind-blowing, perfect joy in heaven. And so as we go through this life, we might not know all of the details in our road between here and there. We might not know all of the bumps and twists and turns along the way, but we know that what's coming, we know that the end is good beyond anything that we could imagine here. Because you will be with your Savior Jesus and you will look upon the face of your Father and you will dwell right alongside his spirit of holiness all the days of your life from then to the far side of eternity. Amen. Amen.